How many of you have ever mapped out your family tree? Any of you guys interested in that stuff? I remember when I was just out of high school, I got very interested in learning about my family history, particularly because I was living in Eastern Europe and part of my family had immigrated to North America from Eastern Europe. And so I was very interested in seeing if I could retrace some of those family roots. And I was able to do that. I started uh, out by buying some software for my computer. And then, uh, you know, I would map out my family tree and I would talk to a lot of my family members and try to get as much information as I could about stuff that they knew and stuff that they remembered about ancestors and relatives. And I got pretty far with that family tree until one day I got a blue screen of death and my computer died and I had no backup of course and so I lost all that information that I've been working on for like years right but mapping out your family tree is a very popular thing to do these days surprisingly popular actually at least for me as I was looking into it this week let me give you some stats. Ancestry.com is, you know, that's the main hub for uh, Ancestry research online. They have 2.2 million paying subscribers, and it's not cheap, by the way. And it has, over, it has made now over $500 million in revenue. That's a big business, and it means that there are a lot of people out there who are interested in researching their family history and finding out about their ancestors. You know, I think people usually go on Ancestry.com kind of hoping to discover that their ancestors were famous in Europe or that they signed the Constitution or came over on the Mayflower. But most of the time you just end up finding out that you're related to a whole bunch of traveling carnival folks, you know. But uh, researching your family tree has become so popular, you may not know this, some of you might. Some of you are totally probably like Ancestry nerds, right? But there is a reality TV show now about ancestry research. It's called the Genealogy Roadshow. It's on PBS, which is understandable, but it's, uh, it's now in its second season. And the show is actually so popular that they, what they do is they travel around the United States and they host live events in major cities. And it's actually not just the United States. They have a version in England. They have a version in uh, Ireland as well. And so the show is so popular, they host these live events in major cities and they regularly attract crowds of thousands of people who wait in line outside for hours in the hopes that they will have a chance to talk to one of these genealogy experts who can give them some insight or some information about their family history. And the reason I found out about this show is because some people I know were posting about it on Facebook. In other words, this is a big deal. This is something people are really interested in. But why? I mean, who really cares, right? You're you, whether you had ancestors or not. Just deal with it, right? Now, why is this so interesting? Well, here's why. You know, because there's a sense in which knowing who your ancestors were, it says something about you, doesn't it? I mean, it gives you a sense of identity to know who they were and what they did and what they were about. And for some of us, that's a good thing. Right? You have a family history that you're proud to be associated with. I have one friend who's a musician, and he traced his family history back to a famous composer in Poland, and that's something he's very proud of. He sees that as a heritage which has been passed down to him, something that makes him who he is today. Another friend traced his family history back to Jonathan Edwards and the Great Awakening in the early years of the United States. And for those people, you know, their ancestry is a huge source of pride. It's, uh, it's, they consider a wonderful heritage that has been passed down to them and makes them who they are today. 
But other people, right, your family history is not something you're necessarily proud of. It's not something you even want to be associated with. You'd rather not be identified with it at all. You're trying to disassociate yourself from it. It's full of bad stuff and bad people that nobody wants to remember. It'd be better to just cut it all off and forget it and start over. And at Christmas time, you know, all this family stuff really comes to the forefront. Some people love Christmas because it's a time when the family gets together. And some people hate Christmas for the very same reason, don't they? Right. Other people dread Christmas because it's a time when they're faced with these questions of, you know, I'm not sure I even want my children to be around certain family members or certain situations. And it creates conflict and, and problems. So you take all of that, all this stuff about family and genealogy, and then you consider this. On the very first page of the New Testament, in fact, the very first sentence of the New Testament, the Christmas story begins not with a baby in a manger, but the story begins with a genealogy. Before we can even talk about angels we've heard on high and away in a manger and silent night, the Christmas story begins taking us on a journey through history, through Jesus' family tree, so that we can understand why the birth of a baby would be considered good news of great joy for all people. And that's interesting, right? Right? Jesus' genealogy, because the Christmas story is what? It's the story of how God became a man. Jesus was God come to us as a human. So considering that, it makes you wonder, well then, who really cares about his family tree? He's God, right? I mean, he could have been born into any family for that matter. Why does it matter that he was born into this one? Why do we need to know about the people who were in his family tree if he's God come into human history, just so happened to be born in this one particular family. Well, here's something to think about. The difference between you and Jesus is that you didn't get to choose the family you were born into, but he did. He got to choose the family that he was born into. And that's where it gets interesting, right? Because any family, right, even the, even the best family in the world, you know, you got some knots in your family tree. You got that crazy uncle. You got some black sheep. Some of you, you're mostly black sheep, right? But, but we don't usually talk about those people, right? We don't advertise those stories. You know, the kids are like, Dad, I thought you had three brothers. How come we only talk about two? Well, we don't talk about Uncle Jimmy, son. And I'll tell you why when you get older, right? You see, we just don't talk about those people. We don't advertise those stories. We're not eager to talk about them. But here in Jesus' family tree, that doesn't really seem to be the case, right? There are five people who are given special mention in Jesus' family tree. And so you'd think, well, five people given special attention. Well, those must be some pretty special people. Those must be some pretty great people. But when you look at a little closer, like who were those people, here's what you find. Here's some stats for you. Number one, all five of them were women. Now, maybe you say, well, what's your problem with women, Nick? I don't have a problem with women. I'm saying this. It's significant that all five were women because this was a very much a male-dominated society, right? It, women were not generally even mentioned at all in genealogies at this time, and it was even common. Did you know there's this common Jewish prayer that men, Jewish men would pray, and the prayer went like this, I thank you, God, that I was not born a dog, a Gentile, or a woman. Nice, right? So anyway, the inclusion and the special mention of five women in Jesus' genealogy is very significant. Secondly, uh, out of these five women, 
three of them were Gentiles. Okay, three of them were Gentiles. Gentiles, right? You see, Jews were, were so racist, I guess you could say, that they came up with this designation, Jews and everybody else, right? So everybody else is a Gentile, and these women were Gentiles in the ancestry of the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, the King of the Jews. This would have been a very uncomfortable fact for the Jewish people, who tended to be, like I said, quite racist. Now, God had never intended, God never wanted them to be racist. In fact, God's intention was that they view themselves as a missionary people, a people who are called and chosen to be a light to the nations, people who are called to reach out to the surrounding nations with the truth and the knowledge of God. But instead, they had become so inward focused, they had developed a sense of superiority. And so they became so racist that some rabbis, and of course this wasn't good, but this is what happened. Some rabbis even taught that if you were a Jewish person and you accidentally rubbed up against a Gentile person, say on the street or in the marketplace, then you should go home, you should burn your clothes, and you should go through a ceremonial cleansing, right? So the fact that three Gentile women are mentioned in the family tree of this person who is supposedly the Messiah, well, that's not something that most people would have wanted to advertise. That's not what helps you win a popularity contest in that society. Thirdly, uh, four out of these five women had bad reputations. Uh, they had reputations for immoral behavior. Now we're going to see that only three out of those five actually deserved their reputations, but still, Four out of five had bad reputations, and three out of five completely deserved those bad reputations. So the question is this. Even if Jesus did have some knots in this family tree, why does the Bible need to go out of its way to talk about them? I mean, in other words, what do the knots in Jesus' family tree tell us about him? I think they do tell us some very significant things about Jesus. But before we answer that question, I'd like to take you through our text. So, uh, last week we looked at the first woman, one of these first of these five women in Jesus' family tree in Matthew's gospel. Uh, Tamar, we looked at her in verse 3. Today, we're going to pick up the story in verse 4. So, Matthew chapter 1, please read with me from verse 4. Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, sounds delicious, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, there she is, Rahab. Okay, so we're going to stop there. Rahab is uh, the second woman mentioned in Jesus' genealogy. Now, Rahab, how many of you know the story of Rahab uh, in the Old Testament? Rahab is one of these people in the Bible who's kind of an enigma, right? People aren't quite sure what to do with her. They're not quite sure how to fit her in the box because, you know, she's, uh, she's an interesting one. So if you would please turn with me in your Bibles to uh, the book of Joshua, chapter 2. It says, Joshua chapter 2. For 40 years, let me just give you some background. For 40 years, the people of Israel had wandered in the wilderness. They were unable to enter the promised land because of fear and unbelief. They were not willing to trust the promises of God. And so because of that, they were unable to enter the promised land. They were stuck in the wilderness because of their unbelief. And let me just say this, that is where unbelief always gets you. It always gets you stuck in the wilderness, getting nowhere. 
But now there's a new generation. And this new generation is different. Their hearts are full of faith. They're ready to step out. They're ready to trust God. This generation is ready to cross over the Jordan and take hold of the promised land. They're ready to go fight for it and trust God to give them victory even if the odds seem stacked against them. And this new generation, they've got a new leader. His name is Joshua. He takes over for Moses. By the way, the name Joshua in Hebrew is Yeshua. You know who else? His name was Yeshua? Jesus. You realize that Jesus and Joshua are the same name in Hebrew, and that name means God saves. So think about how significant that is, that the Messiah would be born, and God would say, here's what I want his name to be. I want his name to be God saves. But So here's Joshua. They're preparing to lead this new generation into the promised land. But right on the other side of the Jordan River from where they're standing is this large fortified city called Jericho. So instead of just kind of rushing in and attacking Jericho, Joshua decides he's going to send in some spies to gather some intel and then find out exactly what they're up against. So let's read the first couple verses of Joshua chapter 2. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. Well, okay, so wait a second, right? Uh, where did they go? Well, they went to the house of the prostitute. The prostitute, what are these guys doing? Going to the house of a prostitute in the first place. Well, here's, this is that woman, Rahab. She's the one in Jesus' genealogy, and she's a prostitute, right? What did you guys talk about at your church for Christmas? Mostly prostitutes, right? But, but so what are, these, what are these guys doing at the house of a prostitute, right? They're supposed to be men of faith, men of God. What are they doing at this house? Well, if you think about it, I mean, going to stay at the house of a prostitute was actually, probably they didn't have a lot of options. And it was probably a pretty smart move because these guys are spies, right? Where else are they going to go? It's not like they have some friends. They can go stay on their friend's couch in Jericho. They don't have any friends in there. They can't go to the Motel 6, the Holiday Inn. Everybody's going to know that they're in town, right? So they, the house of a prostitute was really the only place they could go where they could have anonymity. Okay, but let's continue reading in verse 2. And so it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, the men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. So even though Rahab's house was a safe place to hide, word still got out that, you know, somehow that these guys were here in town. Verse 3, we read, Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken... Uh, the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I don't know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out, and I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up on the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to Jericho as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. So basically, you know, police come. Where are they at? She says, they went that away. Go chase after them, right? She sends them that way. Uh, so, you know, you could say that she lied to the police. Uh, verse 8. 
Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings, the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterwards you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that, we have, that you have made us to swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. So Rahab here, what she does is she reveals the reason why she was willing or even eager to hide these spies. It's because she has heard about their God and she believes, right? Even though she's living this life of immorality, she has heard about the one true God and she has faith in the power of that God and she trusts in this promise that he's going to give his people this land of Canaan. But yet, her lifestyle is a problem, right? It is a problem. And so she finds herself in this awkward place where she has heard about God and she believes, but yet she's a prostitute. She's got this lifestyle that is incongruent completely with her newfound faith in God. And so something's got to give, right? Something's got to change because she can't just be a follower of God and continue in a lifestyle of prostitution. But at this point, it seems that she still has yet to take that step to put the old life behind her and make those changes because, well, I'm sure she had plenty of reasons why it was hard, you know? I mean, this is all she knows. It's what pays the bills. This is her identity. Everybody knows her like this. I mean, to change all those things, it would be a dramatic change. And for somebody who that's all they've known, it would probably be scary to make those changes. Nevertheless, she needs to make those changes, right? So do you get the picture of who Rahab is? She's a new believer, we might say, whose lifestyle is in conflict with her faith, and she hasn't yet taken the steps to change her lifestyle. And she's in a really vulnerable place, isn't she? Because she has no one around her to encourage her in her faith. She's got no one around her to encourage her and help her to walk with God and make these changes in her life that she needs to make. 
She's got no community of believers there in Jericho. No one to support her in walking with God. All the people around her, well, they would just probably encourage her to continue in what she's always been, a prostitute. And they would discourage her from going out and changing things. You know, they would say things like, hey, Rahab, I mean, that's just who you are, okay? Don't try to pretend you're somebody different. Who do you think you're fooling? Don't go out and try to pretend you're Susie Christian now. I mean, everybody knows who you really are, Rahab. We all know it. Even you know know it. Who are you going to fool? Let me tell you, there are a ton of people out there who are in Rahab's shoes, in our society too. I've met so many people who are in that spot. They believe, but yet the pull of the old life is so strong. The hooks of the old life are so deeply embedded that it's so hard to leave it behind. Over the years, I've seen this happen many times. People will come to church because they want to get right with God. They want to put the old life behind them. They want to put behind them the lifestyles of addiction or sin or crime. And I've seen people experience that liberation, which is absolutely available to everyone in Jesus Christ. But I've also seen some who get drawn back into the old lifestyle that they were trying to leave behind because the hooks are so strong. One of the most important factors, I believe, in this is community. If people have a strong community of believers around them, encouraging them in their faith, they're much more likely to continue in a strong relationship with God. But without that, it's incredibly hard, incredibly hard. And that's one of our our main things here at Whitefields. We want to be a true community. We don't just want to use it as a buzzword. We want to do it. We want to live it. We want to be it. Because Christianity... And walking with God, it was not meant to be an individual pursuit, right? It is meant to be a community endeavor. But see, the thing is, Rahab didn't have that, did she? And so we see Rahab here, and she's really in a precarious position because her lifestyle and her faith are in conflict with each other. And one of them is going to have to give. And everything around her is encouraging her to continue towards this lifestyle of prostitution. She's got no one encouraging her towards God. Her faith, I mean, it's like a candle, right, that's barely lit and the flame's flickering and it's threatening to go out. Until one day, there's a knock on the door, right, out of the blue. There's a knock on the door. Well, it's probably just another customer, right? I mean, people probably knock on her door all the time. The old life is so hard to leave behind. Knock on the door. But as Rahab opens the door, what does she find? These men come in, and she soon realizes these men aren't looking for a prostitute. They're looking for a hiding place because they're spies, and they're Hebrews. Hebrews, the same God that she's interested in, that she's believing in. Hebrews. Well, what are the chances of something like that happening? It's like God knew exactly what she's going through and exactly what she's struggling with, and he sends these men to her at that time right when she needs it. And so Rahab makes a choice that day as these men are in her house. She makes a choice to side with the people of God and to align herself with the plan of God rather than those of Jericho and her own people who are opposed to God's plan, which is to give the land of Canaan to the Israelite people. And so Rahab has this chance now to put her faith into action, doesn't she? Put her faith into action. How? By protecting the spies and aligning herself with the people and the plans of God. And because of this, did you know that Rahab is mentioned two times in the New Testament? As an example of faith in action. 
One of the most interesting one, she's mentioned in James chapter 2, that famous section about faith and works. And she's mentioned what I think is really interesting in Hebrews chapter 11, which is kind of the hall of fame for the heroes of the faith from the Old Testament. I mean, everybody who's anybody's in there, right? I mean, Abraham, Sarah, Noah, Gideon, they're all in there. 17 people in total in that hall of faith. But what's really interesting to me about Hebrews chapter 11 is not just who's included in this list of heroes of the faith, but who is not included in that list. I mean, for example, think about who's not there, who you would think should probably be in there, right? I mean, like Elijah the prophet calling down fire from heaven. That's some faith. Elisha the prophet, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, Jonah. These people didn't make it into the hall of fame for people of faith. I would have thought those guys were shoe-ins, right? But you know who did make it in there? Samson. Now that's another one of those ones. Samson, how'd he get in there, right? And Rahab. Rahab, she's in there. In James chapter 2, like I said, uh, James mentions Rahab as an example of somebody whose faith is not just theoretical, but it's practical. It has legs. It walks. It's on the ground. And so if you look at Joshua chapter 6 also, a couple chapters from now, you know, they do the thing, they march around the the walls of Jericho, the walls fall down, the battle's over, and according to this promise, Rahab and her family are indeed spared. And what happens to Rahab after that? Well, she goes on, you know, kind of like VH1, where are they now? Rahab goes on and she marries one of the believing men of Israel. They have a son. You know who that guy is? His name is Boaz. You guys ever heard of Boaz? Boaz, we're going to talk about him next week. Boaz ends up going on to marry a a woman. So Boaz, I'll put it this way. Boaz puts his faith into action and ends up marrying a young woman named Ruth. And Boaz and Ruth, they have a son named Jesse. And Jesse has a son named David. See where I'm going with this? David becomes the king of Israel. So not only did Rahab come to faith in God, but she did leave that lifestyle of prostitution behind her, and she got a new life and a new identity in God, and she ends up becoming part of the community of believers, and she raises up a godly son and ends up becoming included in the family from which God chooses to bring the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, into the world. Isn't that incredible? But maybe you say, hey, just wait one second here. Rahab is commended in the Bible as a person who put her faith into action. But what was her action? Well, her action was lying or deceiving. I mean, how is that even okay? Isn't lying wrong? I mean, that's, that's like one of the Ten Commandments. There's only ten of those commandments, right? It's not, like, it's not like in the broader list of things that you probably should avoid, right? Ten Commandments, don't do these things. These are the things that really matter. They're not peripheral. We've only got ten of them. And one of them is don't lie. And yet here's this woman who lied. She didn't tell the truth. She deceived. And yet we're told that her lie was a great act of faith. How does that work, right? A lot of people are confused by this. A lot of people are made uncomfortable by this. But let me ask you a question, which I believe is really at the heart of the issue here with Rahab. In extreme or exceptional circumstances, in order to do what is right, might you sometimes have to do something which is generally wrong? That's a tough question, isn't it? It's an ethical question. I would say, 
Yes, in fact, I believe that's what we see here in the story of Rahab. It's an example of this principle. And I'll also say that there are a whole slew of other examples I could give you from the Bible to answer that that answer to that question is yes. This is the difference you see between ethics and rules. You might say, uh, in other more Christian terms or Christianese terms, you might say this is the difference between the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. And Jesus was really big on this. I mean, this was one of his main contentions with the religious leaders of his day. They were so focused on keeping the letter of the law, right, both in strict ways, but also in creating loopholes so they could say, yeah, I did do it exactly, but I still got to go around it, right? So they had no concern, though, for the spirit of the law, which is God's heart in making that law in the first place. So are there ever times when doing the right thing requires you to do something which under normal circumstances would be wrong? Yes, for example, let me give you an example. I've been reading the book of Acts to my kids at dinner time, And so we get to chapter 4 where Peter and John get arrested for speaking in the name of Jesus. The authorities come and they tell them, stop speaking in the name of Jesus. Now, we're told in the New Testament, in fact, one time by Peter himself, who was included in this, this scenario here in Acts chapter 4, that God has placed governing authorities over us and that we should obey the authorities who are placed over us because ultimately they've been ordained by God and so we honor God by honoring the authorities. We obey God by obeying the authorities and we're to do this even if the authorities are sometimes corrupt or not honorable themselves. Yet Peter and John disobey the authorities. They say, sorry guys, I mean, we, we refuse to obey you on this one. We will not stop speaking in the name of Jesus, and you can arrest us, you can beat us, you can do whatever you want, but we are not going to obey you on this one. Now that's what we might call civil disobedience. Now does the Bible say that civil disobedience is wrong? Yes. Should we submit to the authorities? Absolutely. But are there extreme circumstances in which the right thing to do, the thing which honors God the most, is not obeying the authorities? Well, clearly the answer is yes. Let me give you another example. In 1 Samuel, David's soldiers are famished, right? They don't have anything to eat. They're out in the middle of nowhere. And so David takes them into the tabernacle, and they eat the consecrated bread, the show bread, which is reserved in the law for the Levites only. But these soldiers are starving and they have no other food to eat, but legally they're not allowed to eat this bread. Only the Levites are allowed to eat this bread, so they broke the law, right? Well, technically, yes, they did. But yet Jesus comes along later and says that David did the right thing because the spirit of the law is that the law is meant to promote human flourishing, not prevent human flourishing. Let's say, for example, you're driving a person who is having a medical emergency. You're driving them to the hospital. Is it against the law to break the speed limit? Yes. But is it sometimes the right thing to do in that situation? I'd say yes. How about Rosa Parks? She refused to obey the laws of Montgomery, Alabama, which required her to give up her seat on the bus to a white man because she was black. She practiced civil disobedience. She broke the law. But was it the right thing to do? How many of you have heard of the book God's Smuggler, Brother Andrew? When I uh, first moved to Hungary, this was one of my favorite books. I, I found this book so 
intriguing because it's, he, there's this one section where Brother Andrew talks about his travels to Hungary. So Brother Andrew, in case you don't know, he was a Dutch man uh, who would smuggle Bibles and Christian materials, gospel materials, into communist countries in Eastern Europe during the time of the Iron Curtain. So while I was living in Hungary, I loved this because I'd read about how he came to Hungary and he's talking about places in Hungary where he would go and he would visit underground churches and how he would bring the Bibles in through the borders. And he went into Romania, which really was the place where uh, Bibles were basically forbidden. And so he, he was smuggling all these Bibles into Romania, smuggling gospel materials into Russia in more recent times, uh, I've known, you know, there's a kind of a movement uh, towards taking mission trips to smuggle Bibles from Hong Kong into mainland China. And so you can take this ferry and basically load up your suitcase with Bibles and gospel tracts and stuff like this. You take the ferry over to mainland China and you pass them on. Now, is that illegal? Yes, that is illegal. That's against the law. These people are breaking the laws of these countries which restrict the propagation of Christianity. Now, doesn't the Bible teach us that we should obey the authorities and obey the laws of the land? Yes, but are those extreme circumstances in which the right thing to do requires you to do something which under normal circumstances is generally wrong? In this case, smuggling. Probably. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a, a Christian pastor living in Germany during the rise of the Third Reich, the Hitler and the Nazi party. And he struggled very much with this question of whether in extreme circumstances, some, sometimes they might require you to do something which is generally wrong in order to do that which is right in the eyes of God. For example, if there are Jewish people living in your house and the Nazis come in and ask, hey, do you got any Jews living in your house? What's the right thing to do? Should you lie to them in order to save the lives of those people? But isn't lying wrong? You see, Dietrich Bonhoeffer struggled with this question so much. And so did so many Christians in Germany during that time. Because he wanted sincerely to live and walk before God in a way that pleased the Lord. He didn't just want to do what was practical or pragmatic or easy. But his final conclusion was that sometimes extreme circumstances require you to do something which is generally wrong in order to do what is right in the eyes of God. And he ended up with this saying, this is one of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's famous sayings. He said, Christianity is less about carefully avoiding sin and more about courageously doing the will of God. That's muddy waters, isn't it? It's messy. It's not easy. Now, does that mean that the ends justifies the means, kind of Machiavellian type of thinking? No way. No way. It does matter what you do. You can't just say that all that matters is the end result. No way. All it means, though, is that in some extreme circumstances, there are times when in order to do the thing which is right, the thing which honors God, the thing which does the will of God, you might have to do something which in normal circumstances is generally wrong. And I believe that's the case here with Rahab. Rahab is in a wartime situation. You see what I'm saying? She, she realizes Israel is at war with Jericho. She makes a wartime decision to support God's plan and give the land of Canaan to the people of Israel. And so she aligns herself with God rather than opposing the plans of God. That was her act of faith. And it seems that God was extremely blessed by it and honored by it, actually, because he mentions it so many times throughout the Bible. Uh, he, he seems to be so blessed by it. When God looks at Rahab, he seems to not see her faults. He seems to only see her faith. 
And so that brings us back to where we started, Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. I said earlier, the difference between Jesus and you is that you didn't get to choose what family you were born into, but Jesus did. And so what does Jesus' family tree tell us about him? The story of Rahab is messy, isn't it? It's so messy. It's so, it, it makes us feel so uncomfortable because it just doesn't seem to fit neatly into our box. But yet God seems to really like these kinds of stories, doesn't he? I mean, not only does he include these people in his family tree, but he gives special mention to them. And so if Jesus got to choose his family tree, then what does his family tree tell us about him? It tells us this, that Jesus purposefully identified himself with broken people. Jesus purposefully identified himself with broken people, with sinners, with Gentiles, with foreigners. Why? In order to remind us that that is precisely why God became a man, to redeem sinners, to create an open door to God for those who are on the outside, to provide the grace and the power to change hearts and transform lives, to declare that in him the barriers of race and sex are torn down, to declare that in him there is redemption. That like with Rahab, if you will give your life to him, he can take the tangled strands of your life and he'll weave them together into a beautiful tapestry for your good and for his glory. And if he can do that for Rahab, well then what about you? If God could take a person like Rahab, a prostitute, and give her a new life and a new identity and make her part of his family and redeem her life and repurpose her life and do something great through her, well then what about you? If he would take someone like that, someone like her, well then surely there's hope for someone like you. Amen? Because God became a man. His name was Jesus. And he came to take upon himself all of our sins, all of our failures, all of our regretful mistakes, so that we could be redeemed, so that our lives could be repurposed, so that we could be part of his family, and we could have a new life now and forever. And that is what Christmas is all about. That is why Christmas is good news of great joy for all people. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for redemption. Lord, we thank you for the redemption that is in the gospel. We thank you that that is the very reason you came, to identify with us, Lord, to become one of us, that you might redeem us, that you might save us, and that you might give new purpose and new direction to our lives. Lord, we see what you did with Rahab, this woman who was living in immorality, but Lord, you took her and you brought her out of it and you gave her this godly heritage where she, she had a new life and a new history and a new family. Lord, we thank you that you want to do that with us as well today. So we come to you this morning, we say thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the redemption that is found in him. Thank you that we see that in other people's lives. And Lord, we want to experience that in our own lives. Lord, would you take the tangled strands of our lives and weave them together in a tapestry for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.